but, uh, but let's get going because we haven't got very long and we've got a lot to talk about. So uh, as the talks between uh, the Conservative Party, the government and the Labour Party continue uh, about whether or not uh, there is anything like a parliamentary majority for the withdrawal agreement, it might seem a rather odd time to be talking about uh, negotiating the next phase of Brexit, whatever that looks like. But we do know that there's quite a lot of thinking going on in Whitehall about how do we prepare for phase two. Uh, the Institute for Government, lead author Tim Durrant, on my far left, produced a report uh, in early April. Actually, it was a report we'd had on the stocks for quite some time. We were waiting for a moment that didn't make us seem utterly oblivious to what was going on in Westminster to publish it, uh, called Negotiating Brexit, the Future Relationship. And I think just a couple of weeks beforehand, the House of Lords uh, EU committee produced its own report on how the UK needed to gear up to uh, actually maximise its influence, both in the sort of governance arrangements for the future, but also in its role as a third country. And those are the sets of issues we're going to be discussing today. So uh, we're very delighted to have not only Tim, who's going to very, very briefly set out some of the headlines from our report, but is, of course, available on our very excellent website uh, for anyone to read in full and highly recommend you do. Of course, uh, being read avidly through Whitehall uh, as we speak. Uh, we'd like to have Lord Ricketts, who was a member of that House of Lords EU committee, but of course in former incarnations was Permanent Secretary at the FCO, National Security Advisor and Ambassador to France. Jobs he did sequentially rather than all at the same time, as is the current fashion, but anyway. Um, Indeed. Then, uh, because one of the things I think has been quite noticeable about phase one was that it was quite a closed process. Remember, the Prime Minister's uh, original determination was to have no run running commentary and minimum external input into what the UK was doing. We're absolutely delighted to be joined by Jane Thomas of Unlock Democracy uh, and former coordinator of the Brexit Civil Society Alliance, uh, who is going to be talking about actually how might uh, we involve people beyond Whitehall in phase two, and Stephen Adams, uh, Senior Director of Global Council, who some of you might have seen in his previous uh, outing here when we were talking about how the UK should run future trade policy, uh, which was curtailed, curtailed <laughs> by a fire alarm. Hopefully not going to happen today, but if there is one, it's for real, so you'll need to get out again. Um, but Stephen is going to has lots of experience uh, advising uh, on European and British trade policy, training UK's cadre, emerging cadre of trade negotiators, but has also worked in DG Trade and the European Commission. So we'll be asking Stephen in particular to think actually about how the EU is going to approach these talks. So what we're going to do is set off with Tim very briefly, then have comments uh, from our, uh, our panel, and then give you lots of chance to ask your questions of all the panel. And I think given the very distinguished audience, actually also add in any quick observations you might want to make as well. If you want to join the conversation on Twitter, it's of course hashtag, hashtag IFG Brexit. Uh, and let's kick off. So Tim, tell us what we say about how to get it right second time round. Cool, thank you Jill. Uh, I will be brief. Um, I think there are two key points I want to start off with. One, is with, one of which is that time is short. So with the extension of Article 50 through to the end of October, as now seems likely, 
Uh, under current plans, that means the UK has 14 months to negotiate the entirety of its future relationship with the EU, covering trade, security cooperation, data exchange, all of this whole host of areas. Uh, trade negotiations normally take much longer than that. In the report, we have a, a graph showing that sort of, you know, some EU trade negotiations have taken almost a decade, uh, and the UK is trying to do a lot more than that in a lot less time. Obviously, it could extend the transition. Um, and then the second point uh, to start off with is that obviously the politics of all of this is hugely uncertain at the moment. So we talk about what the government needs to do. The government that ends up negotiating that future relationship could be entirely different to the government that we have uh, at the moment. Uh, having said that, we think the points are still relevant. So there are three main areas we looked at in, in our report, uh, which we think the UK needs to use the extension uh, up till October to get ready. The first one is working out what it actually wants from that future relationship. Um, we saw Article 50 was triggered at the start of uh, uh, 2017, and it wasn't until summer 2018, over a year later, that the UK actually set out its vision for the future relationship in the Chequers White Paper. That white paper prompted the resignation of two secretaries of state and was rejected by the EU. So at this stage, the UK really has nothing on the table as to what its future objectives are. Um, but we would argue that writing another white paper is not the best way of doing that. Um, the the Czechoslovak white paper was kind of handed down from the government and said, this is what the future relationship will look like, like it or lump it. Um, we argue in the paper that, A, the, the Prime Minister, whoever it is, uh, needs to get the agreement of the entire cabinet before doing that. Uh, they, then, they also, rather, need to bring in other views. So civil society, business groups, the people who are actually going to use this agreement and make uh, make it work, need to feed in before the negotiations start rather than at the end. Um, the second thing that the government needs to do, and this extension is a useful time to do this, is work out who is going to be doing what, so clarifying roles and responsibilities, and that means both at the political level and at the sort of official machinery of government level. So we saw again, uh, phase one initially was kind of characterised by confusion over who was doing what. Was David Davis leading the negotiations? Was Theresa May? What was Ollie Robbins' role as both Permanent Secretary of the Department for Exiting the EU and the Prime Minister's EU Sherpa? Um, we argue that given the importance of this relationship to the UK as a whole, the Prime Minister will inevitably want to oversee it. Uh, but again, because it's going to be so broad and cover so many areas, he or she will not be able to get into the day-to-day -day of everything. So they need a, a deputy who is part of the Prime Ministerial team rather than a Secretary of State with a separate agenda. Um, uh, in the current cabinet, the Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster would be an obvious candidate for that role. They can, uh, David Liddington as it currently is, can bring together Secretaries of State, form a kind of coherent cross-government position rather than allowing departments and Secretaries of State to uh, pursue their own priorities. Uh, but underneath that, um, there needs to be kind of clear roles and responsibilities within the civil service. So alongside the Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, we think it should be the Cabinet Office that is coordinating the negotiating position rather than DEX-EU, again, because of that reporting uh, structure. Mm -hmm. uh, and going to, to Jill's point about what Stephen's doing, we need uh, negotiators. So the day-to-day -day negotiations will be done by civil servants. They need to know uh, what they're doing, they need to have the experience. We don't have a huge amount of trade experience in the UK civil service at this point in time. Where it exists, we need to make the most of it. And we also need to allow people time to build up that experience. There's a real risk if civil servants are changing jobs every 12 to 18 months on the UK side and their EU counterparts are there for the long haul, that we set ourselves up at an automatic disadvantage. 
And then the final point, which kind of runs throughout these negotiations, is uh, which I hope we'll hear more from Jane about, is about engagement. So, um, uh, again, phase one was kind of characterised by secrecy, both within government, but also no one in government wanted to talk to anyone else about what they were doing. So we argue that negotiating position needs to be agreed with sort of external input, but also during the process there needs to be input from business groups, from civil society, there needs to be regular engagement with parliament, select committees need to be having more information, discussions with MPs and peers, so that at the end of the process it's not a surprise when a 1,000-page, 2,000-page document is slapped down. People know what is going to be in that and can uh, feed into it, hear how the negotiations are going, because that will help the government with the ultimate approval and uh, ratification of it down the line. So those are the three key points in our paper. There's obviously a lot more detail, which hopefully we'll get into. So, Peter, I'm not sure whether you want to pick up any of Tim's specific points there, but you've also looked in your report, haven't you, at how the UK needs to reshape its sort of operations to actually... Uh, maximise its influence from outside the EU institutions rather than being a member state. So do you want to just yeah. give us a, a quick guide to what you think we should be doing? Uh, I will do so. So we did a report separately from yours, <laughs> um, and for reasons of house policy, I think we can't actually have it available to you here, uh, although our committee clerk, Stuart Stoner, has probably got some concealed about his person if you want to uh, grab a copy or that's obviously available I online. Um, I think we've come to very similar conclusions starting from different places. Um, as you say, we need to um, learn the art of influencing the EU as a third country, um, and the EU needs to learn the art of having an ex-member state, and one as strong and as uh, influential in many areas as we are. So we, we looked at um, formal governance arrangements uh, between the UK and the EU, informal ways of influencing, and the role of Parliament in that. Uh, and just a couple of sentences on each of those. The formal arrangements, uh, the withdrawal agreement contains uh, quite a bit of detail on the governance of itself, <clears throat> including this very powerful joint committee, uh, which is going to uh, become a very dominant force, I, I guess, in the implementation, including the power to amend the withdrawal agreement itself. Um, also important because it probably then becomes the precedent for what a joint committee on the future relationship will look like as well. Um, so it's very important to concentrate on that. The governance of the future relationship negotiations is going to be a lot more complex than um, the withdrawal agreement, which with hindsight will be seen as a relatively simple and straightforward affair. Um, in the UK, it's going to encompass pretty much the entire Whitehall, as far as we can see, uh, with a lot of coordination issues for government, which you touch on. Um, how do we deal with the trade-offs trade that would inevitably arise? But also between the UK and the EU, it, it may be a little bit more uh, difficult to manage the EU member states jostling uh, with their own interests uh, at stake, and there is much less detail in the political declaration about how that um, governance will, will work. There will be a high-level conference uh, every six months and some form of joint committee as well. Um, and uh, we've looked at some of the models for how joint committees work, Switzerland, uh, for example, and the EEA joint committee uh, details in our report. Second area, in, informal influencing. I mean, this is where we've got to get smart and, and learn how to do it. Uh, we have assets. Um, one of them is our standing arrangements with a whole range of EU agencies in many, many areas, economic, uh, security in other areas. Um, but we note that the political declaration is, I quote, complex yet uneven and imprecise about how uh, UK relations with these agencies will work in the future. That seems to us to be quite a high priority to look at. 
Um, the role of Akrep, dear to my heart, and to uh, Lord Michael Jay, who is there with a number of other distinguished uh, colleagues of mine from the Lords. I think Akrep is going to have to be completely uh, restructured and redesigned. It's going to have to become more like a classic influence, diplomatic influencing machine uh, than a negotiating machine. Uh, people will need different mindsets and different training. Bilateral relations in capitals will be hugely important, uh, our bilateral embassies and our sectoral organizations in Brussels um, uh, in all the different areas will, will also have an important role to play. Lastly, Parliament's role. Uh, we shouldn't overlook, and our report probably is rather fuller on that than, than yours is for obvious reasons. We will have a current scrutiny role for as long as we're in the EU and for as long as EU laws affect uh, the UK. Uh, beyond that, um, the more powerful a joint committee is, the more important scrutiny of its work by Parliament will be. Uh, and we're proposing a mechanism for either House to uh, propose um, that the government require in the Joint Committee um, to raise concerns about draft EU legislation that might have an impact on us, or to put a specific item on the agenda of the Joint Committee. So parliamentary um, oversight of the government's work in the Joint Committee important. Um, we agree with you, frankly, that the track record of the government in, in uh, transparency and enabling effective scrutiny has not been great. That's a diplomatic statement in the first phase and needs to be a lot better in the second phase. Um, and finally, Parliament itself can be part of this influencing network. Um, UK, European Parliament, um, Joint Committee seems to be an essential thing. Continuing the role in COSAC and other uh, parliamentary dialogues. And last of all, uh, dialogue with the devolved administrations and making sure the devolved administrations are also part of joint committee consideration when their issues are at stake. So we're going to have to do a lot of new thinking uh, and we're going to have to reinvent a lot of our traditional structures and processes. Okay, and with that, I'm going to move seamlessly on to Jane. You've been very critical of the uh, way in which the uh, uh, government perhaps didn't really engage externally very much in phase one, arguably relatively limited set of issues on the table in phase one. As Peter says, massive range of issues across the whole of government on the table in phase two. So what will you be looking for uh, for the government to be engaging civil society properly in phase two? Um, well, a lot more. Um, it's been very patchy and I've just... You know, I've done my homework. I did actually do did read the report, and I have to concur that I agree with a lot of what came out of that was about the lack of engagement and about the lack of transparency, especially as the process dragged on because there was plenty of opportunities to do that. So there was some failed things. Um, I would just want to pick up on a, on a few things sort of going forwards, and this is very much in the light of in the last 12 months, the. Civil society, Brexit Civil Society Alliance has been going round the, England holding round tables and just listening to what civil society local groups are saying on the ground about, about um, the prospect of, of leaving the EU. And we've also been doing an awful lot of work with the devolved nations, with Northern Ireland, um, Scotland and Wales. And in fact, when I took the job, the first thing I did was go to Belfast. Um, and I think that was really important because I think we're the only sort of organisation that's done this sort of pan-UK outreach into civil society groups. And that has informed an awful lot of our thinking on this, bearing in mind that we are 
a collective of people who haven't had no, we do not have a position on the referendum and our whole role has been really as we leave the EU to make sure that um, the law that comes over our rights um, and all the standards and all the things that we have enjoyed um, we still are able to enjoy going forward so um, I think it's been interesting this period there's a bit of an opportunity to take stock and so we're able to do that. And the, the, the other thing that I think has been really important, and this is very timely for us, is mm. last week we were in Belfast and it's the first time we've had all the devolved civil society groups together. So those from Northern Ireland, Wales and Scotland. So it's about 100 groups represented. And it was in Belfast and it was incredibly powerful. And in the absence of any the government actually engaging or in fact moving on this people are occupying a space and you know be careful of what you wish for as well because i think it is quite interesting what is happening the conversations between the devolved administrations the conversations within different groups in civil society and you know take back control could have all sorts of constitutional implications going forward as well certainly with scotland and i was fortunate mm. enough to chair a panel with joanna mm. cherry and the brexit minister from from wales and um in you know they've got an awful lot that they want to to see um going forward so my i suppose my my big take home from from all the things that we've been doing in terms of engagement is take the devolved seriously and include them early on that does not mean and i think you say in your report doesn't mean they should sign off but certainly a much stronger role for the for the jmc um there were all full there were all sorts of apocryphal tales of brexit ministers going over to northern ireland to meet civil society groups to talk about the good friday agreement and the border and not even reading the belfast good friday agreement you know, that document is as long as your document. It's no longer than. And, um, yeah, so that's kind of um, lessons that on terms of their homework they could do better. I think the other thing is just when you're dealing with things like Northern Ireland, consent has underpinned so much of their political dialogue and what's happened in the last 20 years. And we could learn an awful lot of good practice from some of our devolves. I was saying earlier that it's quite interesting the civil society relationship with the Scottish Parliament is, is a very positive one and they do a lot to nurture that as does Wales and in the absence of Stormont the Northern Irish civil society groups have got their act together and maybe that's because of not having Stormont and maybe it's because they've had to be the brokers for the peace process but there's an awful lot of good practice. So just finally, a couple of things for me. I mean, there's a huge absence still of the rights and justice issues. And if you talk about the border, it's not about trade. I'm going to quote Paddy Kelly here. It's kids, not cows. You know, it is about what happens in terms of rights and justice going forward. The absence of the charter is a debate that we're just having at the moment. You know, what happens with things like that? Can we pick that up with the future relationship? Um, I think also this process has shone a real spotlight on the constitutional weaknesses of this country and the, the, the weakness and the instability of it. And that is really, really, you know, it's, it's causing all sorts of tensions within our hard-won settlements for Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland. But also it's really clear that England is unfinished devolution business. And we really need, you know, there might be an opportunity to have some 
conversations out with a Brexit about sorting out constitutional arrangements. And just note that people think just because we've got Westminster and Whitehall, that's the voice of England. It's not. It's the voice of the UK government. And we really need to see how English civil society can play a role going forward. Lots of opportunity you mentioned about new thinking and new alliances. I mean, I think, you know, that whole... It was brilliant in Belfast. It was very positive. It's, it's, it's um, lots of fantastic stuff come out of it. But we seem to be going counter to some of the political trend, which has been to close down debate and discussion, not to be transparent. So um, I would like to see a whole way of doing things differently from the government. Um, certainly, there's a real issue about something being done to us. It's happening over there. We have no control over it. And that's actually from the English that came from a lot of the English groups. So, you know, you go to Cornwall and they, they feel as, as removed from this process as do people in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. And in some ways, I think they feel more removed because they haven't got a parliament or an assembly nearby. So we've got to think about ways of doing that better. Um, and certainly not having engagement meetings in London at 8.30 in the morning as a breakfast meeting is, is, has been, I think, quite shameful. <laughs> yeah, uh, I know I didn't go, actually, because 8.30, sorry. Um, and break, and yes. But, I mean, future funding, this is just one last thing that's a big elephant for a lot of civil society groups. And, again, is just the, the lack of transparency about future funding. It's a huge issue about the Shared Prosperity Fund. So there's an awful lot of work where the government said, oh, yes, we'll consult, we'll consult, we'll consult. And you mentioned that in your report about consultation. There's not, you know, a promised consultation that will make so much different. Mentioned nearly 12 months ago just hasn't happened. So in terms of marking the government's homework on this, I'm afraid could do an awful lot better. That is on our missing in action list, the Shared Prosperity Fund of things that we haven't seen. And just uh, quite a lot of Jane's points were actually picked up in a report that we published mm -hmm. on, uh, yes, okay. earlier this week on devolution at 20, which raised the English yeah. problem and actually the sort of pressures Brexit was creating on the devolved settlements. So it's very good to have those sort of issues linked back. Stephen, you're an experienced you know, commission watcher, interactor, uh, employee. How are they going to sort of prepare to deal with the UK as a third country? I think one of the the points that Ivan Rogers made here when he was here back in March is that the EU's played a great tactical game. It hasn't been thinking that strategically about how it wants its relationship to be with the UK longer term. But mm. what are they going to see with uh, quite a big and important trade negotiation with uh, perhaps a slightly disorganised uh, countries? Well, I do, I, I do think they, they parts of the parts of the Commission have been thinking about the, the strategic question. I think it's been drowned out mm. at, at this stage, but it will come back. And I'll, I'll say that, I'll say something about that in a second. I mean, the first thing, and I think this is just a point that's worth reiterating, is that the, the Commission won't approach this negotiation like any negotiation it's had before. And that, that's not just a function of the fact that the UK is different. Mm. The UK is different, and we'll get onto that in a second. But, but of course, it's it's for an even more fundamental reason, which this is a very unusual dynamic for, 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 for a negotiation. It's, it's essentially a deliberalization, and that, that changes the way in which the Commission will think about uh, the way it manages its stakeholders. It will change the way it assesses the costs and benefits. 
or change the way it sees the balance between its defensive and its offensive interests. And I think this is also important when we, when we make judgments about how long, for example, we think this negotiation is going to take. Because I think you do need to remember that typically an FTA negotiation is open-ended in the sense that it's not done under the auspices of a ticking clock. It's not done under the auspices of an automatic cliff edge deliberalization de de as the Article 50 process and then the subsequent transition period would apply. And, and that, that will change the that will change the dynamic. There's no reason why a trade negotiation has to take 10 years. They, they take 10 years essentially because the political imperatives to close are different and are not there. So that's just the first point. The Commission, and I'll say a little bit more about why the Commission will see the UK as different in a second. There's a more fundamental point, which is that the Commission will start this process as it starts any process with a, with a trade partner, which, which is that without wanting to oversimplify it, it will draw up a list of things that it wants. And alongside that list, it will draw up a list of things that the other side, in this case the UK, won't accept. And that sounds ridiculously simplistic, but at the end of the day, that's the dynamic that governs how a negotiation works. And implicit in that is the assumption that if you push your trading partner too hard, or if you ask for too much, or if you miscalibrate, they will walk away. And that's the way trade negotiations work. They may, the walking away may not be definitive, it may be, a, may be a delay, but in the end, the assumption is always that if you push too hard, a trading partner will leave the room. The negotiation will stop. And this, it seems to me, if I was in Brussels right now, is what is shaping up to be so different about this negotiation. Because we seem to have a parliament that won't contemplate, under any circumstances, no deal. We would be, in the circumstance you're describing, operating under the auspices of a backstop, which if it was ever triggered, would be politically toxic. And we seem to be, at least potentially, contemplating a situation in which Parliament may actually try to statutorily bind negotiators to a particular outcome before they even walk into the room. And that, to my mind, there's nothing wrong with red lines in a trade negotiation. All, red li all negotiations have red lines, and they're there for a good reason. They're, they're there, partly, for the reason I've just described. They signal to the other side where there will not be mutually acceptable outcomes. The thing that makes red lines real, of course, is that you can walk away. If you can't walk away, they become red handcuffs. And I, I think the problem is that at the moment, well, rather, put, let me put it from a Brussels point of view, at the moment, Brussels will be contemplating a trading partner that not only has things it says it must have, but doesn't appear to have the political willingness to leverage its capacity to walk away. So, what's Brussels going to conclude? Well, what's Brussels going to say it needs, or rather it thinks it can get, out of this uniquely unbalanced <coughs> dynamic. I think there are two things to look for. I don't think Brussels is particularly worried about market access, partly for the reason we've just been saying, because in a deliberalization, it's assuming that the bias will be broadly towards keeping the markets as open as they are now. I mean, there are some small exceptions to that we can discuss. I think the bigger concerns for Brussels actually are the concerns that it's signaled in the Commission's analysis to the Council in January last year of the level playing field issues in a possible future relationship with the UK. Brussels' worry is that regulatory arbitrage in the UK, standards arbitrage from the UK, when it is so large, so competitive, and so close, means that having the UK in an MFN trading framework is already risky if Brussels doesn't or isn't able to reach down into the UK regulatory architecture and, 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 and ensure a certain level of minimum standards. And in some ways, it's even more risky in an FTA. Because in an FTA, what Brussels would have given away 
is its last line of market defense, which is its tariff structure. So for Brussels, the problem is what happens if you end up with a deal with the UK in which you've provided market access or you're dealing with an MFN situation but which, in which you ha all you have been able to do in terms of level playing field commitments, so locking in UK environmental standards, labor standards, tax standards, public procurement rules, state aid rules, competition rules, is what the EU has conventionally been able to do in an FTA like CETA or TTIP. And that is a big problem for Brussels. They see that as unbalanced. Uh, the UK is too close for MFN comfort and maybe even too close for CETA kind of Canada style comfort in terms of level playing field stuff. So that is, I think, the area where the EU will move most decisively to try and exploit the leverage that the UK's apparent starting position will give it. And what it will do, I suspect, is to reach into the drawer and take out the model that it used with Ukraine, uh, which is essentially to impose a very high level of harmonization in areas like state aid, competition, labor, environmental standards. If it can't do that for some reason, it'll look for the toughest uh, non-regression and non-derogation clauses that it's ever used. And if you want a model of what those might look like, look at the non-derogation or the non-regression clauses in the backstop protocol, which are far more rigorous than anything the EU's ever used before. The other thing, of course, that it will want uh, to try and get out of this unbalanced scenario is going to be to do what the EU says it doesn't do in these situations, which is to cherry pick. And the obvious area where it wants to cherry pick, no surprise, I suspect, to this room is going to be fisheries. So I think that's what we should look for. We should look for some strategizing in Brussels, which is designed to take advantage of what they will see as a uniquely self-limiting trading partner in terms of its ability to walk away from an asymmetrical negotiation. The aim will, of course, be to deliver essentially the benefits of Turkey for the cost of Ukraine, <laughs> the benefits of Canada for the cost of Norway. Choose your, you know, cho cho choose your comparison. Um, and the key thing I think that means, and you guys allude to this in the report, which, by the way, I thought was very good. Um, you allude to this, but it seems to me it's the elephant in the room, which is the UK needs to know what its stop loss is. What is worse than triggering the backstop? What is worse than no deal? What is worse than having to give up on a statutory commitment to seeking customs union or something like it? And unless we know that at the start, unless negotiators are clear, on, the, mm. on that at the start, this doesn't look like a negotiation <coughs> to me. It looks like a series of sequenced concessions. So uh, just to pick you up on that, Stephen, if our strong card is the EU's concern about level playing field, the sort of discussions I alluded to at the start <coughs> of Labour trying to actually write that into the withdrawal agreement bill, the uh, political declaration as commitments from the UK, are we about to actually just concede our best card for getting a better deal? Well, I mean, it depends on how binding you regard mm. that commitment to be. It depends on whether you can imagine a scenario in which a, you know, a statutory obligation to seek customs union uh, somehow is, 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 is trumped by later politics or later law. It's not unusual to write a red line into law. I mean, the US does it in Trade Promotion Authority all the time. But of course, the, the thing is that TPA also contains red lines you can't cross in other areas, and the US Congress expects that the US will walk away from a deal that doesn't look right. Um, but again, we seem to have a parliament, I, I don't want to cast too many aspirations, but we seem to have a parliament that wants to both lock in a necessary outcome and refuse the ultimate leverage of being able to walk out. 
And that seems to me a big problem. Okay, that's very interesting. Peter, I just want to come back. One of the points that uh, Tim made and that we made in our report, uh, she was the former head of the Foreign Office, was a bit about the sort of quality of the UK's sort of diplomatic effort in phase one, the way it had engaged, the way it had sort of, you know, sought to go over the head of the commission negotiators, appealed directly to member states, and seemed to misjudge quite a lot in phase one. I wonder if you want to just talk a bit about um, how you thought the Foreign Office diplomatic engagement needed to work in phase two. And also, I thought in your report, you have a really interesting quote from Ivan again, about how would people really want to go and work in our crap and wouldn't this be the sort of thing that actually would be very quite difficult to get good people to go there because they wouldn't be the people in the room doing negotiation stuff mm -hmm. like that. They'd have to be doing this more diffuse influencing effort and was our crap going to be a good place? How would you be persuading people that, you know, this really was the place where the action was? As you, I think you say, it is for the Norwegians and the Swiss. Absolutely Well. First of all, I mean, I don't think it was the Foreign Office's um, diplomatic negotiating strategy. I think it was a political game to try and go over the heads of Michel Barnier, to try and uh, go straight to the member states and, and um, divide and rule among the member states, which, which signally failed. Um, it may be more difficult for the Commission to keep discipline in the second phase, I think. Um, but so, no, I have no qualms, no problem about the quality of the diplomatic uh, work that can be done. I think. Um, the idea I mentioned of, of bilateral relationships mm. in capitals upstream, mm. um, even before a draft regulation or something even gets written in Brussels, um, that the British diplomats mm. should be there trying mm. to influence opinion, not just governments, but mm. parliaments and civil society mm. and people in the member states. Mm. I think that's, that's natural mm. for us. You know, that's what we do. Um, so I don't have a problem with that, um, and I think the game will be a bit more of an open game in the second phase. When you come to anything like you know, a free trade mm. agreement, you know, that encompasses the entire range of interests in a country. Um, I think UCREP will be different. Mm. Uh, instead of sending negotiators there from every Whitehall department, you will want more of a classic diplomatic mission. And I'd rather disagree with Ivan, actually, because I think it will be an epicenter for Britain's interests in the future. Um, and there's no reason why you can only have, need to have diplomats there. You have very good home civil servants who can go and be diplomats in Brussels. So I don't think there'll be any problem getting quality of people there. It'll need the funding. For one thing, they will need quite large entertainment allowances. <laughs> because the Norwegians and the Swiss told us the one thing you really need um, is to be able to take everybody out to lunch. So there's one plug right away. We'll need a well-funded effort. But I don't think there's going to be any problem attracting quality to it. Okay. Let's go for some questions, and then we'll come back and ask more things. So I'm going to take them in bunches of three. There's quite a lot of people here. Anyone, we've got a couple of roving mics. So anyone want to ask any questions? And we won't, yes. we won't all answer everyone. No, you won't all answer everyone. So let's go over there, Lewis and David, if you come to join here. Yes. Thank you, Chairman. Uh, uh, Robin Bridgman, a colleague of Lord Ricketts in the House of Lords. About five weeks ago, uh, on one of the political programmes at the weekend on Radio, on radio 4, uh, you gave a rather depressing assessment. First of all, that Brexit only appeared in the inside pages of the French papers, where you were speaking from Paris. Uh, and the second is the huge reputational risk and disaster uh, which we will be suffering through this, uh, which a point you actually just have alluded to. And of course, at the other end of the scale, uh, the, um, 
parliamentary channel is one of the best forms of entertainment to our colleagues uh, in mainland Europe, with the chief star being the Mr. Speaker. Mm. Okay, I think that will take some more questions, whatever. Yes. Yes, John Pete from The Economist, uh, maybe also for Peter, but perhaps Tim as well. Um, the role of Parliament, um, I mean, one of the things that seems to me to be happening or have happened this year is MPs have got the idea that maybe they can do all this stuff themselves. They set up an alternative arrangements group to revise the Irish border. They say, let's take out the Irish backstop, let's say. Um, and the, we've got um, Nandy Snell as the um, process that seems to suggest they should have a much bigger role. When people have talked about trade agreements with the United States, it's often been said you can't do it unless you have um, deep, you have authority and Congress can only say yes or no. If we have a situation where MPs feel that they can just rewrite everything, isn't that going to make all this even more difficult? Okay, and let's go down to front. David Hannay, um, also from the House of Lords, but nothing to do with the EU Select Committee now, though I've been on it. Uh, first point, Peter, I think, to you about, uh, and to others, is that it is not, of course, the case that this is the first occasion that the European Union has had to deal with Britain as a third country. Uh, I was a member of the delegation um, before we joined, and I have to tell you that our influence on the formulation of European policy was nil, absolutely nil. Uh, we told the European community that their uh, financial arrangements were going to be disastrous for us as an applicant. Uh, they paid no attention. We told them their fisheries policy was going to be disastrous for all the applicants. Uh, they paid no attention and adopted the fisheries policy three days before we started our accession negotiations. So uh, don't underestimate the size of the hill that you're going to try and climb. But the question I would like to uh, ask you is to say a little bit, any of you, about the, uh, the international policy, the foreign policy cooperation and security policy cooperation, uh, which is very, very vaguely uh, in, uh, referred to in the political declaration, uh, in words which the person who negotiated once described privately as not being load-bearing, um, and how do you think that can be made to work? How can British foreign policy cooperate with the European Union when the two pillars of British foreign policy, which is our influence in Brussels and our influence in Washington, have both been destroyed? Peter, I'm afraid, uh, afraid that I'm going to ask you to have first go yeah. at, uh, right. go at uh, those. First of all, I'm sure noble lords aren't allowed to ask another lord a question. I think that's very important. Um, but I'm delighted to answer, delighted to answer. And, and others will have views as well. Um, first of all, I mean, the, the asymmetric importance of Brexit around Europe does come across to one, in my view, when you travel around Europe. Um, it absolutely dominated the British papers for the last six months. It did not dominate papers in France or Italy or Germany because they have many other considerations as well. Um, and that's partly why the go over the heads of the Commission strategy failed. Uh, people were quite happy, I think, to delegate to Michel Barnier by and large, in Europe, Michel Barnier is seen as having done a good job, um, so much so that he may indeed get a bigger job uh, in the Commission. Um, so I think that that is a problem. I think Britain has overestimated its in, in importance and 
um, impact it has in other EU capitals in this negotiation. And I do believe that there is a serious reputational loss for this country by the shambles that has been our attempt to do the negotiation, which has been a bit more like a series of consecutive alignments with the Commission position in the first phase than, um, than a real negotiation. Um, so, yeah, I think we have lost a lot of ground, honestly, um, uh, quite apart from um, a diminished weight in the world as a result of being outside the EU, if and when we get to that point. Um, on um, uh, the question of whether Parliament uh, getting itself more involved, having a taste for uh, interfering in the government's policy on the EU could make for a much more difficult uh, round next time. I mean, I actually rather agree with your report, and I guess I'm speaking personally here rather than for the Lords, in saying that the secretive approach that the government has taken has not worked, especially when the Commission have been very transparent and open with the other member states. So we were in the position where you know, other member states and the European Parliament knew more than the British Parliament uh, uh, and British civil society. That has not worked. And so I think there's got to be a more inclusive and consultative approach. Don't have to reveal the last detail of our, of our red lines, but I think the more you can um, get some understanding with Parliament upstream, for example, on a mandate, um, get a mandate agreed which has some parliamentary authority, uh, will save a lot of the grief that we've had further down the road, I think, in my view. Um, and on David Hannay, I'll leave others to, to um, develop the point, but I, I see less of a problem about foreign policy, uh, David, because that is, that is not so much treaty-bound, you know much better than I do. Um, it, there isn't so much the issues of legal bases and so on for cooperation on foreign policy where our interests uh, coincide, um, Iran, nuclear and others. I think the real problem is in the security area, the law enforcement, justice, home affairs area, where uh, Michael Jay's committee that I also sit on has done a very good report. There, they are based on legal texts. And if you're a third country, you do not have the same rights of access to Europol, to databases of fingerprints and DNA, to the alerting system that the British police depend on, the European arrest warrant. All those are treaty-based texts, and they need to have negotiation to get third-party rights, which won't be as good as being a member. So there, we are going to have a net loss, clearly. And Tim, you had that in an earlier report you did, didn't you, about yeah. the prospects. Which, do you want to comment at all about either Parliament's role in sort of the negotiations or the Yeah, no, I mean, I would, I would echo um, both of those points from Lord Ricketts there. So on the, on the uh, security policy in mm. particular, um, as Lord Ricketts was saying, you know, that is structured through the treaties and the UK will be outside the treaties, but also outside Schengen. So the countries that get the closest mm. arrangement, uh, well, uh, on current plans will be outside Schengen. The country that gets the closest arrangements with the EU is Norway, Iceland and Switzerland. Uh, and we are not going to be in their same status. We have got some special arrangements, so we are talking about um, potentially having access to passenger name records, so um, airline passengers, uh, which, is, which is not currently a thing for most third countries, but it is going to be a very difficult negotiation. There is no kind of default, which was the UK's starting position, which was, this works well for us, it works well for the rest of the EU, let's just copy and paste and carry this over uh, after Brexit. That is not where the EU is coming at it from at all, and it's going to be a, a very arduous um, uh, negotiation to get to anything uh, sort of that isn't a significant net loss, I think, for the UK. On Parliament, um, I agree as well. I mean, I think the, the indicative votes process of a, a couple of months back shows that Parliament isn't necessarily very good at having one opinion, um, I guess by definition. That's very diplomatic. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, so the idea that Parliament could kind of set forward what it wants for this is, is I think, um, you know, kind of pie in the sky. Having said that, what we don't want, or 
maybe this is just me, but I definitely don't want meaningful vote 17 on the future relationship. I think, you know, yes. the idea that we go through this times 10 uh, in a couple of years' time is, is just too painful to consider. So, as, as I said, you know, being upfront with Parliament about where we are likely to end up, it doesn't mean necessarily that they have a sort of yes-no vote on the mandate, but it means engaging with and being honest about where we are likely to be heading, getting parliamentarians' views so that they have a, a chance to input into that and, and feel that they have been involved, uh, rather than being given um, a 200 or 2,000 page document and saying, here you go, deal with it. I think that's key to something to do differently. Jane, I wanted to... to um, Steve, I was going to say, especially as I think some of the key issues that will, you know, will, will be issues that involve th questions like regulatory harmonisation. And what we saw with checkers, I think, was that w when you finally lifted the lid on what the government was proposing in terms of surrendering an element of autonomy, it was it was that element of the proposals I think that, that was in the end most domestically contentious. And you don't want to repeat that halfway through a future framework negotiation when we reveal that the government's in fact been negotiating aligning UK labour or environment or tax law with that of the EU without having done so on the basis of a clear mandate. Jane, I wanted to come in. One of the things that's done you in, one of the things people say is not only is the EU better at involving Parliament, the European Parliament, partly out of necessity, I think, of having experienced the effects of non-transparency. But it's also, actually, has quite a sophisticated way of involving civil society organisations. They have quite good access to talking to people, things like that. Do any of your members sort of, you know, look and have sort of great access to within the EU uh, and say, you know, actually, this is what we get out of the EU, and that might be yeah, I mean, something we ought to look at. I, I mean, I think, I mean, it was something that when I read the report, I thought what was missing mm. was some observations about the environmental sector in particular, mm. because um, so much of our wins environmentally have been people championing causes and using EU law. So if you think about air quality at the moment, that is because Client Earth have very successfully mm. done um, a lot of legal cases. So, I mean, if you talk to sort of Green Alliance, I mean, they have spent years dealing with the EU. And when you're talking about new ways of negotiating, again, I would include some of the, there's a wealth of expertise in some of these sectors that we are just missing. Um, and I think that goes also sort of in, in terms of international law and constitutional law. And just coming back to some of the, the stuff that you're talking about in terms of just the foreign policy stuff. I think one of the things is about, and this has come very much from, from our, our members as well, sort of like ChemTrust concern about sharing of data and, and things like that. There's a whole huge issue about some of, of, of these issues. And the Scottish Parliament um, is less worried about, I suppose it's, it's the security issue that they have done an awful lot of reviews about. And what we forget here is that, you know, particularly the Scottish have got their own relationships with the EU as well. And they should be valued. And those, I think, we are missing a trick here because with some of the devolved responsibilities and some of the funding, of course, Wales and Scotland have built up 
fantastic relationships. That's a good point. I mean, we're talking yeah. about Parliament yeah. singular, but yeah. of course we need to remember yeah. that yeah. actually it's not and it's, singular. And it's an asymmetrical yeah. one, and I think this is proving a huge challenge when I'm sorry, but the government hasn't actually understood its constitution, unwritten though it may be, and it doesn't understand its responsibilities and the asymmetrical mm. nature and what, what rights and responsibilities have been devolved down. And that's where they have, I think, missed a huge trick as well. Let's go for some more questions. So let's go here, Lewis and David, if you could go to the back row. Yeah. Um, thank you. Carol yeah. Walker, I just wonder what... Uh, how significant you think in this next phase the fact that we have such an unstable government with no overall majority of its own. You've all explained wonderfully how we're already being completely outmaneuvered and are likely to be more so in the next phase. And, and given that, uh, as, assuming we go into the next phase with the current current government, there's still no um, certainty as to how much longer it's actually going to survive. Isn't that just an added incentive yeah. for the EU side to play hardball and keep it going for as long as they want? Okay, yeah. Um, uh, uh, ben Alexander. Um, it's quite possible we'll end up with a European Parliament with quite a different composition yeah. very shortly. Mm. Um, will that permeate through to the European negotiation position or do the imbalances that Stephen Adams has already identified mean their position is actually pretty predictable anyway. Mm. Okay, and then down the row, if you can, brilliant. Yeah. Thank you, uh, Joey Jones from Cicero. Could I ask the panel whether they could identify anything that the British government has done right in the first phase of Brexit that we should be doing more yes. of? And if that is, uh, as I suspect, a more challenging question than it should be, do they have any confidence that our politicians are really going to be able to completely junk everything they've been doing for the past two and a half years or so and turn over a new leaf? Okay, well, let's go to the sort of uh, the double instability question first and combine Carol and Ben. Um, we've got change in the European Parliament. We've got a new commission coming in. You, we don't know who the president of the commission is going to be. Uh, may even be Monsieur Barnier coming off his huge triumph. Mm -hmm. um, or not. He hasn't passed yet. What? He hasn't passed his deal yet. Uh, maybe that's a new incentive. Anyway, maybe they think he gets prized for trying or driving this out. Anyway, um, uh, what do you know? And we've got the sort of prospect of you know, how are we really worth negotiating with when it, you know, we might have a new prime minister, we probably will have, going to get a new prime minister for phase two, who may very well face an election and potential big change. We had the slightly bizarre proposition of the Prime Minister at the weekend, or at least someone briefing the idea that we would effectively be offering a temporary arrangement to sometime in mid-2022, and then the future relationship would all be the subject of the 2022 <coughs> election. Uh, Stephen, uh, uh, what's that going to look like? How does this all affect the negotiations? Well, sitting there? I mean, a change in government doesn't necessarily have to impact on the conduct of a trade negotiation. It obviously depends on the policy or lack of policy of the, the, the parties contesting for government. Um, I mean, what will, of course, worry the, 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 the European Commission, the, the, the EU27, will be the prospect that they, they, they don't really know whether the UK's negotiating aims or the way it plans to conduct itself won't change materially in the next two to three years, which, of course, it, uh, it, it might. Um, what I suspect they will conclude... Well, I mean, obviously, they, they will be watching very carefully to see whether the, the, the key 
UK aversion to walking away, to, to, to no deal changes. That, that's the game changer, as far as I can see, from the, from the EU27 side. But as long as that parliamentary commitment remains where it is, I think that their strategy will just be to push as hard as they can, as you'd expect from any negotiator. I mean, in terms of the, the parliament, I, I don't see the recomposition of the parliament making a huge difference either way. I mean, obviously, um, I, I think there is a chance that, you know, if, if, if Macron doesn't do particularly well, that he will, I think that will compound his current instinct to push for a hard date, if not a not, not a hard Brexit. I don't, I don't think he's in favour of hard Brexit, but I think he wants clarity, and I don't think he wants to allow uh, his view. You know, his, he, he obviously sees this as a very important sort of turning point in the Euro European policy cycle, political cycle. He wants that to be characterised in a particular way. That party risks being rained on uh, to some extent. He, he will want that. He'll look for tools to remove it. Um, but in terms of the actual adoption of a mandate for negotiation with the UK and then parliamentary ratification, you know, it's up-down majority, so, you know, I, I think you could rely on some variation of the Grand Coalition plus others to, you know, to see, to see a deal through. Peter, do you agree with that? Do you think uh, that uh, European Parliament's elections, possible, yeah. coalition Germany under review in the autumn, new commission, any of these like to make a big difference or not really? I'm, I rather agree. I don't think yeah. the European Parliament it's such will. Um, I think the nature of the new commission uh, will have some influence, yes. Um, uh, but I also think, to Carol's question, I think it's profoundly unsettling for other members of the European Council to not be sure that the leader that they're trying to do a deal with will be there next week or next month. Yes. Um, because, it, you know, as people know, it's a very personal thing, the European Council, and some of these issues get decided on personal issues, you know, personal interactions. Um, and to have a leader who appears to be very weak uh, is unsettling because then they can't decide is it worth paying the last small concession to get this done mm. with this leader? Uh, we've already tried that once anyway. Uh, or not? Or do we hold on because there'll be somebody else in, in a short time? So, we have so that is uncomfortable, I think, for the European model of how to uh, crunch decisions through European councils. So I'm just, you're probably not going to uh, respond to this, but. I mean, we had the sense earlier on that the European leaders sort of thought Mrs May was worth supporting because she was probably better than the alternatives that they might get. And there's a bit of, you know, uh, beset leaders' solidarity uh, we saw at one time. But over the last sort of nine months, might you say that the you know, EU has come to think, actually, she tells us she can get these things through, but actually, you know, she can't. She's, you know... Uh, and she's not great at the personal chemistry, as far as we can see at those dinners and things like that. At least that's the sense we get out of briefings from Brussels. So, so do you think a new leader might actually be able to, you know, do things better? You know, we've got a you know, potential bouncy new leader who comes in and says, you know, alternative arrangements, revising the backstop. You know, in mind? I can come in. No? Is that the sort of burst of energy we need? I mean, how's that? With a particular hairstyle? Yeah. <laughs> um, or not that, not that much hair, but not anyway. Much but, um, I, think, I think, as I said, it's been a, it's been a real shock to them mm. that um, having done what they classically do, which is hard negotiation, last minute, mm. a last fix, mm. then coming back in extra time for another little fix, mm. And still the leader can't get it through their parliament. That's not something that they're used to. I think that's very unsettling for them. 
I don't know about the personal chemistry, yeah. um, I think by and large they would prefer a leader with a parliamentary majority where they could do a deal uh, of whatever kind and that it sticks and it goes through. I mean, if they get a leader who is trying to tear up what was done laboriously over two years and start again, that's not going to make them want to, to do a deal either. But yes, um, stability uh, uh, of a leader, yes. Isn't it Gladstone who said that you know, my first rule of foreign policy is good government at home? I mean, I do, I do think that that's important, yes. And I, I mean, did anyone do anything right? I mean, just to speak up for the British professional team, uh, Ollie Robbins and his team, actually those withdrawal agreement text, you know, negotiated in the most difficult circumstances, you know, I thought was a pretty professional effort by the negotiators, even though the um, playing field on which they were trying to play was distinctly muddy. I was actually going to ask all of you what, what, the, what the UK had done right. Jane, um, how are you coping with instability? What's, what's your strategy? Oh, I love it. Um, it's I, I just on that on that sort of point. I think there's some interesting things. It's like a heady, whole heady mix of things have come, collided together, unforeseen things that you just couldn't plan for. One of the things that was very noticeable when we started with the EU withdrawal bill was, you know, we do briefings, we'll do some, we'll we'll, we'll talk about the charter and stuff. We have had the newest intake of MPs. If you think of the 2017 and 2015, that is nearly 50% of the House of Commons are actually what we would call a new intake. And they're having to confront the most complex piece of legislation for 40 years. I'm not making an excuse, but that, I think, has compounded hugely mm -hmm. to the ability of new MPs who still haven't even found where the room is or the toilet, having to get around. I remember trying to explain statutory instruments to somebody, you know, and that you need to know that level. And I think so we have been poorly served as much by anything by by circumstances as much as the politics. Um, and some of our big thinkers are on the back bench on, on all sides. And so, you know, that's that's not helped. And we have tried just to navigate our way through this because if you try and respond mm. to the, the turmoil mm. that it's been in, you won't mm. get anything done. And in some ways, you can cut through it. Just one thing on the EU, don't forget they've got their own problems coming as well. Mm. And much has been made about this, mm. but obviously, whatever happens, they've still got huge issues going forwards yeah. with funding. And, you know... Again, I think one of the take-homes for us is try not to second-guess anything, because we've gone beyond that, haven't we? Trying to map out what's happening. But, I mean, the EU, as, as itself, is going to have to confront a lot of issues post-us. Big agenda that they have rather than us. So, Tim, what's the UK done well? Um, yes, I'm done. We've got some of this in our report. We do have some of this in our report. So, um, I, I should disclose at this point, I used to work at the Treasury. Um, oh. on, <laughs> e on EU exit. On EU exit. I wasn't involved in what I'm <laughs> going to say now, but one of the things that we think did go well was um, on financial settlement, once the UK had kind of in principle accepted the idea of it, the negotiations was done well. There was a lot of detail. You know, UK civil servants were looking through arguing their case sort of and, and you know the reports of 100 billion euros plus um, sort of early after article 50 trigger that figure was you know more the settlement is a lot less than that original figure so I think you know again coming back to uh, what I said at the beginning you know knowing what you want um, is, is, is key, key in that and and engaging in the details sort of not not going in with these kind of like overblown principles but looking at the reality of the negotiations and saying, okay, we're engaging with this issue, here's what we think about this. That went well. Stephen, do you care to do anything as well? Um, well, I mean, I have to say, you know, I have to be 
having gone in to government mm. on multiple occasions over the last couple of years, pitching ideas or mm. talking about, I, I've, I, in general, I've found the civil servants I've engaged with just you know absolutely great. I, I think the the problem has been one of of, of political leadership. It's, it's been incredibly difficult for civil servants to define strategy and execute it when when they are being. Uh, they're sent, being sent mixed signals by their leadership, or where their aims are indeed not being clarified, um, you know, before they've entered the room. Right. It's seven o'clock, and I'm very aware we said we'd finish there, but I just want to make sure if there was any final no questions. Fire well, no fire alarm, no fire <laughs> alarm to cut you off yeah. this time, Stephen. That failed. Anyway, let's just do a last bunch of questions here. So, Lewis. Come here, and then we'll get on. Yeah. Hi, uh, Lisa Ogawa from The Guardian. A really quick, straightforward question. Is there any scenario in which any of you see a deal being completed within the 14 months that Tim mentioned? And if so, what is that? Okay. What would it take? <laughs> okay, that's an easy question. Think about that. <laughs> Andrew. Uh, Andrew Carner, trustee here at the Institute. I was very persuaded by Stephen's analysis, and I want you to cast your mind forward, Stephen. If, if it works out, as you say, it, it, at some point, the British government has, in effect, to walk away, and no deal must become uh, a realistic prospect. Would you like to then think, and the other, rest of the panel, what would that, how would these negotiations work, pan out, after you've had a, a breakdown, after you've had a no deal, how do they get back together again, and, and how, do, how does that affect the dynamic of the negotiation thereafter? Because they have to get back together again at some point. Okay, I'm just going to close it there. Okay, so we've got two really good questions. Um, Stephen, pick up Andrew's point about uh, we have a no deal breakdown. It's one of the points that we've been making, which is even if there's no deal, that at some point that doesn't mean we sort of go and live our separate ways and never talk yeah. to the EU ever again or whatever. I think the EU gives us about two weeks till we come back and start asking for things and making special arrangements. But you know, what does that look like if we sort of well, yeah, play I, well, the no It strikes part. me that that's a, that's a great question, and it's a question that in many respects we, you know, we, 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 we need to know the answer to, but we, it's never been addressed, and one of the reasons why it's never been addressed is because uh, I think the, 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 the prospect of the UK walking away was, broadly speaking, taken off the table quite early, and the, the idea that you might have to contingency plan for uh, a collapse in the negotiations, well, it's well, occupied... No, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it seems inconceivable to me that the two sides, if that was the settled will of the, the UK, that the, the two sides wouldn't have to work out some form of contingency. Um, the problem is, of course, that we know that the political obstacles to that in the short term would be enormous because the, obviously the, the, the interaction would be toxic. There's a set of, sort of relatively technical contingency planning measures that we can imagine taking place you know, fairly easily. But the question of whether, for example, the EU would be willing to move to an Article 24 GATT compliant FTA negotiation without a backstop, I mean, that just looks politically incredibly difficult. So I think we don't really know. I mean, the, the, the truth is we won't know what Plan B looks like uh, until it actually becomes a serious, feasible, uh, you know, potential outcome, um, or until it happens. Um, Okay, so who wants to answer Lisa's uh, question about uh, what's the scenario in which we get it all done and dusted and it's fine, difficult bits can be provisionally applied and on uh, 
January 2021, we move into our new permanent relationship with the EU. <laughs> well, Jane. Um, Jane's offering. Jane. Her. Okay, Jane. Jane you go. You go. <laughs> well, well, this is not obviously not said on behalf of the alliance. I mean, we're kind of shooting the breeze a bit here. But I mean, again, you know, we've been buffeted by un unexpected events, and of course, uh, will it, is it about four conservatives that have to cross the floor for uh, May to lose her majority, and that suddenly makes everything very, very different. And that, again, it's kind of in the Conservatives' gifts, isn't it? If they really are going to push for a change of leader, and it's Boris, we know at least two Conservatives who said they will not stay in the party. So you're suddenly into a very, very different scenario, aren't you? Now, would a general election mean that you suddenly have um, a, 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 a coalition, because that's what it would be, that would enable a deal? I, Possibly, I think where that would go was a Labour-SNP coalition. Okay, so we've got political change. Peter, well, what's I mean, your scenario? I'm just to play out your scenario, I'm yeah. assuming therefore we, mm. we have somehow passed the withdrawal agreement and we mm. get into the transition period and then it's a question of can we complete the rest of the work in the transition period and of course you do have an extension mm. option mm. so yeah. it could be mm. another year. Answer two. no, two. in my view. Two years. Two. Two. Answer two years. No. I mean, could we be well on the way to getting things sorted out? I suppose yes, because I mean, in your scenario, um, we will have eventually found a way of doing the withdrawal agreement deal. So that will help you know, confidence around Europe that this thing that was uh, negotiated so laboriously got agreed. Then we're into the transition period. Of course, everything is still to be argued for in that political declaration. And my guess is it wouldn't be done within the time scale and that things would probably be picked off and introduced and implemented as and when they got settled. So some of the security issues you'd need to do much more quickly and there'd be a double in, you know, um, uh, joint interest in that. Some of the con uh, trade and, and services issues would probably be much more difficult and take much longer. But if you were in a scenario of cooperation rather than a breakdown, I mean, something will get done, in my view, and the closer it is to one of the existing models, yeah. you know much more about this than I do, the more quickly it can be well, got off the shelf and dusted down. The EU could take most of the EU-Ukraine DCFTA out of the draw tomorrow, mm. and if the UK was happy to sign up to it, it's a comparatively simple exercise. Um, I'm going to, I mean, I'll be slightly contrarian and say that actually I think if you put negotiators in Brussels non-stop for 14 months, um, you could you could do it. Um, you've got to remember most trade negotiations are done on the basis of six weekly rounds, um, which is partly what draws them out. I think if you if if you set the negotiation to run permanently, 14 months certainly 14 months plus the possible two-year extension, um, especially if you're essentially working to an EU template. Mm. Um, I, I actually think it's feasible. Fair enough. Oh yeah, and the, but then of course, then politics you know. intrudes, ratification mm. intrudes. Yeah. I mean, that's that a very yeah. Absolutely. There's a lot of ifs in you your know. sentence. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And if we sorted Parliament, if so, if we went for something like you know the sort of bit that there was talked about in Parliament in the last uh, set of indicative votes about some of the sort of you know common market 2.0. I mean, would that be? Well, <laughs> easy common market 2.0 is really just you know uh, sign here. Oh, um, okay. From an EU point of view, so, you so do that quite I think that's comparatively simple. Mm -hmm. I mean. It's, it, then negotiate our annex, but anyway. Well, I was just going to add, I think then you get into mm. the political instability point again, because as you said, you could imagine one government comes in and is yeah. prepared to negotiate yes. a common market 2.0. Mm. Yeah. 
you then have some form of yeah. election and we have it so yeah, and, and the Norwegian model and the Swiss model and all of these countries that have very close relationships with the EU those aren't you know we talk about them as if they're kind of static they're not and they change and they adapt and the UK is going to be continuously adapting mm. its relationship yeah. with Brussels so yes we might we might get an off-the-shelf one mm. done by the end of the transition but then probably yeah, but Jane is absolutely right I, I, and I'm, I'm mm. remiss it's not just the negotiation it's the ratification <laughs> yeah. time it's, yeah, well. absolutely. Yeah. you know we're a long way behind the um, curve on Mm. Okay, any final reflections on what's the most important thing to set the, I'm going to ask you a final question, what's the most important thing that the UK government, you know, uh, Theresa May, Theresa May's successor should be thinking about, let's cast this forward, Theresa May's successor, let's assume they want to get, uh, actually, do some sort of arrangement rather than just sort of walk away, what's the most important sort of thing they should actually be thinking about uh, as they approach their setup for phase two? Stephen? Well, it's, it's got to be being clear about what you want and what you can't accept from the start. And that doesn't just mean a mandate adopted in Parliament. It means the deep mandate. And what I mean by that is what people actually understand the mandate to mean. One of the things that always struck me in the Commission, there are two different things. There's the mandate you adopt or that was adopted by the council. And then there's the deep mandate, the sort of permissive consensus. It's what you know that mandate is understood to mean. So you're not trading on ambiguity. You, are, you, are, you actually understand what the words on the paper mean. And for two and a half years, we haven't had that. We've had phrases which are contested, and we can't afford that. So, James, what do you want a new Prime Minister to say to show that it's going to be different uh, and they've learned the lessons from phase one about the way they've engaged the, civil society? The critical thing is taking people with you. It's, all, it's always that when it's mm. a big political mm. project, isn't it? And that's been an abject failure. And I think the other thing is having a narrative about what the future looks like. I mean, we've, mm. what is missing from this whole debate is what does good look like? What sort of country do we want to live in? And okay, we might be a country that's no longer a member of the EU, but somebody has to paint that picture of what it is and what it's going to be and what the benefits are for our citizens. And if that was the starting point for a new Prime Minister, I think we would give them an awful lot of time and help and support. Peter? Well, I agree with both of you. Yeah. Honesty about the trade-offs, uh, inclusiveness, reaching out at the beginning beyond your political mm. tribe um, to have a more solid base. Mm and then trusting your civil servants to get on with it and do it and not constantly undermining them. Tim, final word. Um, I would echo all of that. I think the other <laughs> and? <laughs> and um, assuming it is a new Prime Minister, you know, using the impetus of becoming Prime Minister to get things going straight away and to echo Donald Tusk, don't waste the time because mm. that's what we saw in phase mm. one. And don't put in place structures straight away that you then might regret uh, in the longer term, she said. So hopefully all those leadership candidates uh, who are taking this evening to announce their bids will spend time to watch this. Thank you all very much for coming and participating so much. And could you all thank our fantastic panel? <laughs>